0: Today's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants Bind him and hand him bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen Thanks <laughs> the word of the Lord
1: lord be with you thank you Uh, just a reminder before i begin um, that we are uh giving fasting and praying every wednesday and so uh, i want to invite you all to join us uh, wednesday evenings at nine o'clock as we pray through the psalms Uh, also uh, last week uh, we took the uh, collection for the uh, pda's ukraine uh, relief and uh, i know that some of you uh, missed it and wanted to participate, and so uh, we will continue to take uh, donations through today. And um, as you saw in the Wednesday Word, um, we are listing all the various charities and ministries that you are supporting. And so um, if you have not let me know yet, uh, please send me a text or an email uh, of any organization that you are supporting and would like for others to join you uh, in that support. Uh, Now, please uh, pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made. And now in the hearing of your word, help us to have the ears to hear and to obey. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So um, as I've been noting in recent sermons, uh, it's really important to recognize the placement of the various readings or parables that we have been uh, hearing about. Uh, we want to see it in its context with the entire scheme of the Gospel of Matthew so that we can avoid the most kind of egregious misinterpretations. Uh, today's parable, for example, uh, should not be taken in isolation because it is the third in a series of parables that Jesus gives in response to a challenge that is given to him by the Jewish temple leadership. Right before our reading in chapter 21, Jesus is at the temple. And the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So, there, so Jesus is being challenged. And he answers them with a question. He tells them. I will ask you one question, and if you can answer me, then I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. The baptism of John, was it from God or was it from man? And so the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees, they discuss this amongst themselves, and they realize that they're stuck because they know if they say it was from God, Jesus is going to say, well, then why did not you follow him? Why don't you listen to him? But if they say it was for man, then they're they're afraid of all the crowds because all the crowd, they believe that John was a man of God. And so they realize they can't really give him an answer. And so cowardly, they say, we don't know. And so Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things either. However, Jesus then goes on to indirectly answer them He indirectly responds to this question of his identity and his authority. And in Matthew 21, we know that he tells these three parables directed at them, because when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables were told, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And so when we hear a parable like this, there is certainly, of course, a more wider kind of interpretation and application that we want to take from it, but we have to realize, first and foremost of all, that it was directed specifically at this particular challenge to Jesus' authority and his identity as the Messiah and as the Son of God. So with that in mind, when we read the parable, we see that this is Jesus' allegorical take on the salvation history of God. The king symbolizes God. He's throwing a wedding feast, which is uh, the, the messianic banquet at the end of time for his son, Jesus. And those who are initially invited, they represent the Jews. And perhaps more pointedly, they represent the Jewish temple leadership, the chief priests, the elders, and the Pharisees. And so the refusal of the original guests is like the refusal of the early Jewish people. They refused to attend the wedding feast. And this is not a kind of just um, an innocuous, polite, declining, of an invitation to some minor social event. This is not like someone's um, fifth birthday party that you can just say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm busy next weekend and I can't make it. An invitation to the king's wedding is not something that you turn down. Those invited would be the, the wealthiest and the most influential people of the kingdom. They would all be expected to be there as a sign of their loyalty to the king and to the future king. Refusing to attend is tantamount to declaring open rebellion. Symbolically and historically, they are making the choice to reject God as king. And then the king, in an unexpected and unnecessarily gracious move, sends a second group of servants to plead with those invited guests who had turned him down. He says, look, I've hired the best chefs in the country. I've got champagne. I've got dry aged steak that's been cooked to perfection. I've got BTS performing at the reception. I mean, please, please come. It's actually a little pathetic, right? It's not a good look for the king. He's the king. And yet he's practically begging his subjects to come to this wedding feast. Why would the king do that? Why does he appeal to such unworthy guests? Why does he keep on seeking those who are indifferent to him, who keep on rejecting him? And the answer to that is simply that that is who God is. From the very beginning, God's nature has been to seek out those who continue to reject him. From the very beginning, with a disobedient Adam, when God asked, where are you? God has been ever seeking out his wayward children. Verse 5, But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And so despite his pleadings, they all refused to attend, and so the king ultimately responds in kind and brings judgment upon those who committed violence. Now, some who refused, acted murderously, but many others refused to come simply because they had other things that they prefer to do, to go to work, to take care of business. They did not come, not because they were on their way to do something bad or evil, but because of ordinary life, because of the other things in life that required their attention. It is not sinful activities that's keeping them away from God. It's the good things in life that are keeping them away from God. And so those good things, which of themselves are not necessarily sinful, become sinful to them. They've made the mistake of making a living, prioritizing making a living over life. They chose the busyness of life over time with the king. To paraphrase uh, the biblical scholar Dale Brunner, Their occupation has become a sinful preoccupation because God does not have first place in their lives. Don't we also make similar excuses for not heeding God's call? We have work to do, family obligations to take care of, busy schedules for our children, hosts of other things, other good things that keep keep us from giving God our highest attention and priority. So th- this is not just kind of a, a historical critique of ancient Israel who ignored and killed God's prophets, the servants of God who kept calling them back to God. It is a warning to us all. And I think some of this, this violent symbolic language is meant to of kind of shake us from apathy and from spiritual slumber. And so the king here now has a problem. The feast is ready, but there are no worthy guests. So you can imagine, right? All the food's been prepared. Everything's been ready, but no guests. And so the king sends out his servants a third time with this instruction. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So now the invitation is to just anybody, regardless of their status, good, bad, it doesn't matter. Any sort of traditional righteousness based on the law is thrown out the window. All are invited, all are gathered. And the words "Go, therefore" anticipates the last words of Matthew's gospel, the last command that Jesus gives to his disciples. "Go therefore, making disciples of all nations. All nations will be invited and gathered at the messianic feast at the end of time. Because those who had been initially invited refused to come, now the feast is open for everyone, the good and the bad. I think Jesus here is just trolling the Jewish leaders who thought that the kingdom of God was only reserved exclusively for them, not for those who are half-heartedly following the Mosaic laws, and certainly not the Gentiles and the riffraff. But Jesus says, all are invited. Now, I wonder, when you hear this parable and you realize that we are a part of this last group to be invited, right? that we were not originally invited, but that now we are invited, that we are among this mass of the bad and the good, that our invitation comes because those who are invited ahead of us refuse to come. How do you feel about that? It depends, right? It depends a lot on what you think of yourself, what you think you deserve, and what the occasion is. For example, if someone were to say to you, you know, I really wanted to go out with that person, but they said no. Then I was going to ask that person, but they said no, and so on and so on, and finally, like." Everyone turned me down, so I'm going to have to ask you out to to go out with me. That's not a good feeling, right? But what if you're on the waiting list for a life-saving kidney and the people ahead of you on that list, their health deteriorates, and so they're no longer eligible, and now you get to receive it? How would you feel then? I imagine there might be some mixed feelings. What if you're sitting on the bench for your soccer team and the star player gets injured and now you get to play? What if that star player was your best friend? More mixed feelings. What if you're on the waitlist for your dream college? Are you glad to get off that wait list and you get to attend? Or are you feeling insecure because, hey, I wasn't their first choice. Some of you who are here from the beginning, uh, you might remember that when you were looking for a pastor uh, for this church, I was not your first choice, nor your second. Right? For a long time, I was just kind of filling in until you could find someone. I'm thankful I got the invitation. <laughs> I'm glad I got to stay. Are you glad to get invited? Or are you bitter that you weren't the first choice or on the original list? I hope when it comes to salvation and eternal life that we're all thinking, hey, I'm glad I got invited. And I think, you know, you can see that in God's economy, everyone is equally invited, the good and the bad. If you are self-righteous and you think you deserve to be invited, You aren't, but God's going to invite you anyway. If you think you're undeserving and unworthy, maybe you are, but you're still going to get an invitation. The king goes to great lengths to look for and to invite everyone. That's the rule of God's kingdom. So there's no need to feel insecure, no need to have imposter syndrome as if you don't belong. Because the truth is, none of us are worthy. Not one. That's not why we were invited. No one has earned a spot. That's the point. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, if the parable had ended there, it would be great, right? Everyone's invited. All are welcome. Mic drop. Done. But then we get this one more troubling scene. The king notices that one of his guests, whom he graciously calls friend, remember like last week we again heard this word friend, this gracious uh, invitation, is not wearing a wedding garment. But like the earlier guests who were given a second chance, this man is also given a second chance to offer an explanation why he's not wearing a wedding garment. He has no reply, and so the king has him bound hand and foot and tossed out into the outer darkness. The king's response seems unnecessarily harsh. I mean, the guy showed up maybe, I don't know, to a wedding in, in, in a T-shirt and jeans, right? It's disrespectful, but casting him out into the outer darkness seems a bit extreme, a bit over the top. Understood allegorically, however, the man's refusal to wear Proper clothing and his inability to offer an excuse means that those, like those who had earlier refused to come, this man is also choosing judgment upon himself. There is a ridiculously inclusive invitation for all, but just as certainly, there is an equally fierce and final judgment for all. But it's a judgment that we each choose for ourselves. So what does this final scene mean for us? What does this wedding garment mean? And are we also potentially in danger of not having a wedding garment? Now, when we hear this parable, we might think, well, you know, these are people who were not thinking about going to a wedding, so maybe they didn't have, you know, The proper attire prepared. It seems reasonable to think that some people are gonna show up underdressed, right? Maybe he was stuck in quarantine for two years and he forgot how to dress. You know, he's been living in his pajamas and all of a sudden he's gotta go to a live event and he doesn't know what to wear. But really, you know, we know at some basic level that special events like a wedding requires a particular attire, right? I mean, you know you got to at least put on, you know, a jacket and a tie or or a dress or something. And notice that in this parable, he's the only one. Out of all the guests, out of everyone gathered off the streets, there's just one guy. And so it tells us that everyone either had the time to go home and, and get some, you know, decent clothes on, or that the king provided wedding garments for everyone. And so this is not someone who is like, oh, what's going on? It's someone who deliberately is not wearing something that was expected of him. It's a sign. It's a willful sign. It's a willful disrespect to participate in this event. Now, over the centuries, people have discussed, and there's been no agreement on what this wedding garment represents. In the early church, John Chrysostom thought that it represented holiness. St. Augustine thought that it represented charity. Martin Luther thought that it represented faith. And perhaps Jesus himself was thinking of Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. If it is a robe of righteousness, then it is certainly not the kind of righteousness that comes from the law. Remember the original guests who lived according to the righteousness of the law? They rejected the invitation. And those who came in their place, they were bad and good. And so clearly, this is not a righteousness of our own. It suggests then the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that is given to us John Calvin, for example, points to passages in Romans and Galatians and suggests that we put on, we wear the Lord Jesus Christ. So this man is then being cast out because he has not put on Christ, the righteousness of God, that has been freely given to him. That is one possible reading. And certainly elsewhere in scriptures, we see that the garment represents being dressed in the new righteousness of God, a life directed toward holiness. Clothes are a metaphor for the the outward transformations, outward evidence of the inward transformations. Ephesians 4, we are exhorted to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on, that is to clothe ourselves with the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Likewise, in Colossians 3, we are told to put away our former ways and to have put on, that is to wear, to clothe ourselves, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So it suggests that in in accepting the invitation to the gospel, that we must, as a result of that, conform our lives into this pattern of righteousness and holiness a life that is then evidenced by discipleship and repentance. Again, John Calvin says, There is no point in arguing about what the marriage garment is, whether it is faith or a holy and godly life, for faith cannot be separated from good works, and good works proceed only from faith. If we are to remain in his house, the old self with all of its blemishes is to be cast off and we are to practice the new life so that our appearance, our clothing, may correspond to our honorable calling. As a result of being in the house of God, it calls us to a particular way of life. Jesus and Matthew know how easily grace can devolve into permissiveness and lawlessness. We must remember that there is a massive difference A massive difference between accepting all persons and condoning all behavior. It's not the same thing. We are freely invited, but we are also called to a particular way of life. Today, for example, we will be receiving into membership of this church two people who are going to share their testimony, and they become eligible for membership of this church, not because of something that they have done, but because we recognize simply the grace that has been given to them. Just grace, that's it. However, our expectations are, our expectations are that they will grow and serve and live out the grace that they have received. Grace does not release us from all responsibilities. Rather, it ought to lead us into a deeper devotion, a deeper thanksgiving, a deeper consideration of how best to live to honor the king who has invited us to the feast. The harsh ending of the parable, I think, is meant to keep us from any sense of spiritual entitlement or presumption. Yes, we are all invited. We are all welcome to the feast, no question. But in light of that gracious invitation, how are we participating in an appropriate and God-honoring way? I think that's the question the parable asks of us. The German theologian Karl Barth, not really known as a party animal, said this. In the last resort, it all boils down to the fact that the invitation is to a feast, and that he who does not obey and come accordingly and therefore festively declines and spurns the invitation no less than those who are unwilling to obey and appear at all. It's like the warning is this. It's a party. You better come, and you better party. Otherwise, you're going to get kicked out. That's the invitation. We are saved by grace and grace alone. We get the invitation not because we are good and worthy, but because the love of God is all embracing In the kingdom of God, God calls everyone to the table. But that divine election, based totally and absolutely on God's sovereign freedom, also calls us to a life of obedience and holiness, of faithfulness and of joy and of joy. Whether you stay or not, that's your choice. That's your choice. But come, Jesus says, and stay festively. Stay festively. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the, for the word this morning. We thank you for the invitation. We're thankful to be invited, recognizing that it is given to us freely. And in thanksgiving, God, in joyful thanksgiving, help us to live, to live appropriately as if we're at a feast, to live a life of holiness and joy. We
0: ask in Jesus' name. Man.